Good evening. Welcome to the Critical Hour. We are coming to you from the capital of the United States of America, Washington, D.C., here on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, political scientist, author, and nationally syndicated columnist, Dr. Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, political analyst, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. For the next two hours, we will explore and analyze the salient news stories that are impacting the global village in which we live. Task reports Macron to speak with Putin again on situation at ZNPP within days. French President Emmanuel Macron plans to speak with his Russian counterpart Vladimir Putin over the phone again on the situation at the Zaporozhye nuclear power plant in the coming days, the French palace has said. What are we to make of this? Well, for insight, let's turn to our first guest. He's a Moscow-based analyst, international relations and security analyst, Mark Schloboda. As always, Mark, welcome back. Dr. Leon Garland, thanks for having me. It's always an honor and a pleasure to be especially on the Critical Hour. Before we get to what I just opened with, I need you to clarify for me. We're hearing reports here, man, that Russia just took a whipping and they turned and ran and the tide is turning and all is getting right with the world. Can, can you help me out here, Mark? OK, so um, over the last several months, while the uh, Russian armed forces were grinding away through uh, extensive fortifications in the Donbass that have been built up over eight years. Um, the Kiev regime wasn't just sitting twiddling their thumbs. They were mobilizing the entire country uh, through volunteers, forced conscripts, preventing any males between the ages of 16 and 60 from leaving the country. Uh, they built up uh, a several hundred thousand strong um, uh, military force, right? Uh, put them through some type of basic training and tried to assemble them into some type of defensive force. This was, um, of course, uh, buttressed by the large supply of Western arms and uh, not so much the high Mars. They're kind of a token gift, uh, but particularly uh, the M777s, uh, the uh, howitzers coming from all NATO countries, particularly the U.S., but other NATO countries as well were useful, uh, as well as Poland uh, gave uh, the Kiev regime, some over 200 uh, T-72 tanks, refurbished um, tanks that uh, the Kiev regime knows how to use. Uh, their troops know how to use. They have parts. They have uh, an idea how to they, they can repair them much more useful than anything else, as well as several hundred infantry fighting vehicles. They shepherded this over the last few months, saving about 70 percent of it, only throwing about 30 percent of it into the combat in the east and building up a large counteroffensive force. And we know that the strategy for this multi-pronged counteroffensive campaign was wargamed and planned out by the Pentagon because CNN and Western media, mainstream media admitted as much. So, I mean, full-on proxy war at this point. Uh, all the funding, all the arming, all the planning, everything's coming from the Pentagon. The only one is that the Ukrainians, uh, whether volunteers or conscripts, are doing the dying. 
this new strategy they've hit on uh, is takes advantage of their strength and Russia's weakness, which is manpower. The Kiev regime has several hundred thousand reserves. They say a million, probably more like six or hundred, seven hundred thousand, but um, you know, uh, substantial. Meanwhile, Russia is has not been fighting a total war against Ukraine. They call it a special military operation, mm -hmm. right? It, an intervention into the conflict. They've limited it to 150,000 troops out of their million man actual <laughs> active duty military and some 2 million untouched reserves. Why have they done this? That's a good question. Part of it may be to make sure that there is, you know, 80 percent plus public support, which there is uh, an, another reason uh, up till now may have been to um, uh, limit uh, to signal to NATO limited intentions in order to prevent a direct NATO military entrance into the conflict for whatever reason. 150,000 troops um, with uh, 40 to 50,000 East Ukrainians fighting against the regime from the Donbass, and that's it. A severe manpower disadvantage. Russian forces are more heavily armed in terms of artillery, mm -hmm. aviation, rocket systems, and the like. So the new strategy is to overwhelm them by attacking them in multiple fronts at once across broad fronts with basically large waves of infantry and mechanized infantry um, so that the heavy Russian artillery, rocket systems, aviation have to exhaust themselves running around trying to put out fires because Russia at this point has amassed so much Ukrainian territory that they can't adequately defend it all if it's all attacked at the same time. The first counteroffensive came at Kherson. The Russian defenses there were prepared and layered. They had amassed their fires, their artillery, their aviation, and the Kiev regime made really minimal gains and suffered atrocious, horrendous casualties, according to the Washington Post. And we're talking in the tens of thousands when we're talking uh, killed and wounded. Um, however, uh, there was also some commando attempts to seize the Zaporozhye nuclear power plant. I count at least four of them so far, and they all failed. Um, and that uh, uh, sacrificed a large number of highly trained troops as well uh, into the thousands. Um, however, the third offensive was to the north in Kharkov, where Russian defenses were at their weakest. Um, they very weak. Um, now, there is every indication that Kiev is going to launch at least a fourth offensive. And that may this one may be the biggest one yet. This is coming in the southeast through Ugladar towards Mariupol. And the Kiev regime forces have amassed a significant armored fist there. And they have begun removing their defensive mine emplacements, indicating that they are about to attack. It seems that Russia several weeks ago got wind of this. They realized they did not have enough troops because of their own shooting themselves in the foot manpower restrictions on the intervention force size. They couldn't defend the south the north and the southeast all at the same time. So they sacrificed the north. It appears that um, over uh, just over a week ago, 
Russia began to quietly move troops out of Kharkov, preparing to abandon it. What Kiev confronted was a a token stay behind forced that themselves they there was no real big fighting there were a few holding actions where the russian stay behind forces tried to facilitate the evacuation of civilians uh those uh pro-russians the large portion of the population there uh that will be treated as collaborators and suffer uh, probably terribly uh, as the neo-Nazi battalions, a- Kraken, Azov, uh, come back in. The Kiev regime state bureau of, of in, uh, investigations has already announced that uh, they are conducting a hunt for collaborators, a cleansing, and that the reckoning has come. So um, not a good day for the East Ukrainians who have been abandoned in this way. Several, uh, there were large queues, convoys of people getting into Russian territory, getting into Donbass territory, but doubtless many couldn't make it, couldn't leave, and are going to suffer as a result. Not to say that everyone, uh, there is a portion of the population that will regardless uh, welcome the return of Kiev troops, and uh, lots of Messages have gone out starting early in the weekend that to report anyone, neighbors who collaborated with the uh, occupiers, with the aggressors, any of their neighbors, and uh, to review the new uh, Kiev regime draconian laws on that, anyone who accepts humanitarian aid from Russians is a collaborator. Anyone who posts anything critical of the regime on social media is a collaborator um, and, and, and um, so on. Uh, so um, they're not going to have a fun time there. Russia gathered its reserves, its defensive reserves, right, uh, held in reserve, part of the intervention force, uh, but they did not send them into Kharkov because they made the strategic decision to abandon it because the south and the southeast are more important. Now both the Kiev regime and Russia are mass moving tanks and other gear to the southeast for this potential large decisive upcoming battle. Kharkov was abandoned. Russia was outmaneuvered and they chose to sacrifice it because of the much greater manpower that Kiev had uh, available to them. Now, while all of this is going on, the main Russian military force in the Donbass is continuing their work, and they've made their normal incremental gains there. So that is continuing. It is not as if the war was lost, but this is a significant setback politically, psychologically, and logistically when it comes to the one settlement north of um, the Slavyansk line, Izium, which was an important logistical hub, the Kiev regime will much more easily be able to reinforce their own remaining troops in Donetsk, while Russia will have a much harder time. So um, it is a serious setback. In my opinion, the Russian government, the military has paid the price of trying to limit this to a special military operation when they are in reality fighting a total war, not just against the Kiev regime controlled parts of Ukraine, but against all of NATO as well. But the biggest battle of the year may be yet to come in the Southeast. It was a strategic 
decision of prioritization, but it is the people, the civilian population of Kharkov, who are pro-Russian, that will pay the blood price for it. Let me ask you this. I understand that um, there has been a lot of um, uh, missile strikes on um, uh, power plants, etc. It seems like the other part of Russia's plans to kind of back off and not go after, you know, things of that nature has changed. What do you know about the retaliation and the missile strikes on, you know, those kinds of stuff? Yeah, contrary to what you may read in in the Western mainstream media, the characterization by the pundits, serious military analysts will tell you that Russia has by and large refrained from attacking Ukrainian infrastructure as much as possible. They're not mass bombing uh, train stations, um, train tracks, bridges, um, uh, so on. They are getting rid of the military uh, factories and so forth and isolated other circumstances. But for instance, they haven't hit power plants, which is something that when the U.S. went into Iraq, uh, you know, was – one of the first targets to inhibit the ability of the enemy to organize resistance. Uh, Russia hasn't done that. But in the last week, the Kiev regime attacked uh, the electrical systems in the Donetsk. Uh, They continued their shelling of the Zaporozhye nuclear power plant, finally forcing uh, uh, the uh, Russian overseen Ukrainian workers there to shut down the last working power plant, uh, put it in the cold shutdown for safety. And they also, uh, on September uh, 7th, 6th and the 7th, uh, launched artillery attacks, uh, uh, cutting off electricity in the Russian in Russia, in the area bordering Kharkov, Belgorod. Um, and there was gloating by Bellingcat uh, members uh, that half of the electricity was cut off. So with that and with the, uh, you know, the um, this humiliating uh, strategic withdrawal in Kharkov, the Russian government seems to have taken at least a first possible step towards taking the kid gloves off and hit Kiev regime electrical infrastructure, cutting out power for hours to large portions of the country. Um, It remains to be seen whether this will mark a sea change in Russian conduct strategy in the war, uh, but it was certainly a warning shot. We have just about 30 seconds left. Did I hear you correctly in saying that so far Russia has committed, did you say 150,000 troops? That's it. 150,000 troops. That's the size of the Russian intervention force with 40 to 50,000 uh, wow. Ukrainian, East Ukrainian Donbass militia. That is it. Uh, that is an attacking force. You're supposed to have a, a three to six to one advantage when attacking. Instead, the opposite is true. The Kiev regime has a, a three to a six to one um, uh, defensive advantage. And is it a bit of an overstatement? I'm reading from the Washington Post, quote, they just dropped rifles on the ground, Olina Matvienko said Sunday as she stood still disoriented in a village littered with ammo crates and torched vehicles, including a Russian tank. The first investigators from Kharkiv have just pulled out, pulled in to collect the bodies. Is it is it is that an 
The, the hasty flight of Russians from the village was part of a stunning new reality that took the world by surprise over the weekend. The invaders of February are on the run in some parts of Ukraine. They seized early in the conflict. Is that a bit too that much That is rhetoric? a bit of an exaggeration and out of context. Like okay. I said, the last Russian, you know, uh, uh, standby, you know, uh, standalone forces that covered the retreat, several of them, you know, several hundred of them were probably caught out um, and uh, they suffered casualties and some prisoners of war. But the main Russian uh, military force that was left there had already withdrawn okay. in good order because they're intended to be used in the southeast. Mark Sloboda, as always, thank you so much for that time. Really appreciate that analysis and that clarity. And we look forward to having you back. Thanks for having me. Folks, you are listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Uh, there's an interesting piece, The Queen and Her Legacy, 21st Century Britain Has Never Looked So Medieval. Jonathan Cook writes, anyone in the UK who imagined they lived in a representative democracy, one in which leaders are elected and accountable to the people, will be in for a rude awakening over the next few days and weeks. For insight into this, let's turn to our next guest. He's an organizer and activist. He's U.S. representative for the Herald newspaper in Zimbabwe. He's a U.S. correspondent to the Southern African Times. He's the external relations officer for the Zimbabwe-Cuba Friendship Association. Obi Igbona, as always, sir, welcome back. How you doing? We're doing well. We're doing well, and and, and thank you. Uh, to John, Jonathan Cook's piece and to your overall perspective on what we're seeing on Western media, the res the respect and all of this um, reverence that we're seeing as it relates to burying the monarch. Uh, your thoughts, Obi Igbuna? Reaffirming, reaffirming their commitment to their way of life, their culture, their values, and what keeps them driven to dominate, exploit, and rape the world at all costs of both its human and material resources. So this is just another day in the life. So, um, but what it shows is, and here we are, do you know how many um, phone calls I've gotten for interviews since Saturday? And what's fun for me, I'm looking at it this way. Now, here we are, Osage for Dr. Kwame Nkrumah, Ghana's first president, Pan-African icon, Pan-African giant. He transitioned 50 years ago this year. Akme Sekoutoure, Guinea's first president, Pan-African revolutionary trailblazer. He turned 100 this year. This is Asada Shakur's 75th birthday, birthday anniversary. For the sake of showing our flexibility on the spectrum, this is Jackie Robinson's 75th birthday. And I haven't gotten a call from anyone to highlight those, how those things fit into the pantheon. So 
This just shows that we still embrace a narrative rooted in victimization, and it reaffirms that if we're going to wage culture warfare, the weaponry at our disposal means everything. You know, um, uh, Obi, I was wondering what you think about the timing, the fact that the um, British monarch died at a time when it appears to me, at least, that the colonial powers are collapsing, that they are trying so hard to hold on to a unipolar world as it is too late. They're collapsing. And kind of the metaphorically looking at this, the queen passing away at the same time, the colonial empires are really imploding themselves. Your thoughts? Well, I mean, I only look at I only look at what our resistance has been and what our resistance is going to be. And what it shows you is that whatever phase of history that we focus on, there are those who fight for liberation and those who feel that they are some perks to being comfortably exploited. And uh, so, for example, the monarchy created something called the King's African Rifles. And the King's African Rifles were a brigade of indigenous Africans who fought on the side of the colonial empire because they were conditioned to believe that our best bet was to stay under settler colonialism. So you had warriors like Didan Kamati and Meek Sister Meketilili who were part of the uh, Mau Mau, the Land and Freedom Army. But then you had some Africans in Kenya who felt that being under British colonialism was safer and was more stable. Idi Amin, who ended up being a thorn in their side, people forget, before he became Amin the Butcher, Amin the Dictator, Amin the Wicked, who once, when he shook Queen Elizabeth's hand, made her take her glove off, saying he was royalty. He once fought with the king's African rifles. But then later on, he did what Saddam Hussein did. He turned on imperialism. So I think of the king's African rifles. I think of the British South African Company. I think of Cecil Rhodes. I think of Ian Smith. I think of Jeffrey Huggins. I think of the Rothschilds. I, th- I think of um, De Beers. I'm thinking about all of that right now. But I understand that in order for us to complete true revolutionary decolonization, this is what we have to go through. I think of all the places in Africa where the British flag was st- stamped in the ground. I think of April 18, 1980, Rafaro Stadium in Zimbabwe, where the British colonial flag came down and Zimbabwe's flag went up. I think of Queen Elizabeth being used like um, they used the parade floats in the Macy's Thanksgiving parades and how she might appear have appeared in Ghana and appeared in Zimbabwe. I think of all the children, generations of our babies, whether in Africa, whether in, they were in the Caribbean and in the United States for that matter that all had to start off their school day by saying, all hail the queen. But I think of how we prevailed and how we overcame that. I think of every place we defeated British settler colonialism and are still waging war against British neocolonialism and how we have to continue to maintain a certain energy to ensure 
that our resistance intensifies by the second. But I also pivot to say um, we also must use this as an opportunity to talk about the feudal system in Mother Africa. Because long before, arguably, the worst aspect of settler colonialism was what? That it interrupted a class struggle that we were having with our kings, with our queens. And when you think of the fact that Dr. John Henry Clark was selected by Amheiser Bush and Ebony Magazine to do those write-ups for Great Kings, Queens, and Africa segment, he, he, Ebony became known for that segment just like Jet was known for the Jet Centerfolds. <laughs> and what ended up happening is people used that, and the reason that became popular is because it was our way, U.S.-born Africans, commonly referred to as African-Americans, we were told, we reached a conclusion, don't start our history in Jamestown in 1609 or 1619, whichever the date is. But we were promoting these monarchs in Africa. As a matter of fact, now in the hood, those who no longer use the N-word, they say, what up, king? What up, queen? When when sisters and brothers greet each other. But if we truly meant what our monarchs represented, how they felt that they should dominate the world, Mansa Musa is supposed to be the richest man in the history of the world, worth $400 billion. So we asked the question, do we want our children to be more like Mansa Musa or more like Modiba, the revolutionary freedom fighter that changed, chased the French settler colonialist out of Mali? So this opportunity gives us a chance to address these things with some clarity, with some substance, and with some purpose. So it is a given that we're not going to hail the queen. It is a given that we don't look at ourselves as British colonial subjects. But if this can be used as an opportunity to take a look at Maurice Bishop, who went to Gray's Inn to study law and comes back to Grenada and organizes the most significant revolution in the Caribbean since the Haitian Revolution in 1804 and the Cuban Revolution in 1959. I remember playing the French horn for D.C. Youth Orchestra and when I made it to the elementary orchestra, this is the first orchestra that you have, we had to play the song British Grenadiers. So this, so what she represents is the culture of rape, the culture of invasion. And in the same way, our Native American sisters and brothers maintained their resolve, and now Columbus is looked at as a war criminal. In the same way that people finally realize that Julius Caesar was an invader, was a conqueror. And as a matter of fact, we remember Hillary Clinton paying homage to him when she discusses what happened to Muammar Gaddafi. We came, we saw he died. The two of you remember that. Mm -hmm. In in the same vein, we are confident that, matter of fact, one of my students who started at the Latin... Uh, Latin school mm-hmm. of Washington. She was in class. She's 10 years old. I've been teaching her since she was five. She's been in about five of the plays. And she, her mother called me today because on Friday she had an issue in school because they asked them to write something about the queen. And she said, I don't, I'm not going to write to her because culturally I don't feel I can relate to her. Mm. 
So if we can use this opportunity to teach our children about who should be our heroes, who should be our sheroes, what we should embrace, what we should reject on, on our watch based on our narrative, we must accept that challenge. And this is at the same time that the war criminal that many of our people celebrate, especially the propagators of black excellence, this is right in line with when Barack Obama went back to the White House for his portrait. I say throw Libyan blood on his portrait. Throw Zimbabwean blood on his portrait. Throw Cuban blood on his portrait. The same way we say put a hole in the head of the Martin Luther King Memorial as Dr. King has the distinction of being the only political assassination victim as a freedom fighter to have a statue on the mall. That statue should have a hole in its head, and that statue should be on the ground the same way he left us laying on the ground of the Lorraine Motel. So what we need to do is turn over, be like Jesus and the thieves of the temple, and turn over all their models of what they consider excellent, what they consider righteous, in the name of the resistance we embrace. Thank you. Amen. As always, greatly appreciate that analysis. We look forward to having you back. Thanks. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back and you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. The South China Morning Post has a piece entitled, Why Size Matters When It Comes to China's New Leadership Lineup. The Politburo Standing Committee is the party's top decision-making body, but there are no written rules on how many members it can have. Analysts say its size is unlikely to change at this year's Congress since Xi has cemented his power and reduced internal fragmentation. For insight into this, we turn to our next guest. He's a peace activist, writer, and teacher, and analyst, K.J. Noah's always, K.J., welcome back. Thank you. Pleasure to be with you. So the Chinese Communist Party is set to hold its 20th National Congress in the middle of next month, a gathering that will usher in a new lineup of the party leadership at the end of the ruling Communist Party's twice-a-decade Congress Following a leadership reshuffle, those at the top will walk down a red carpet and meet the press. What does all two things? What does all of this mean for immediate policy going forward? And to those who say China does not have a democracy, what what do you say to that? Well, it doesn't have an electoral democracy in the way that the United States or the United Kingdom has set it up, but it has a whole process democracy, whereby the will of the people is translated into specific policy recommendations, actions, which is why the country has continuously and continually been an improved place for people to live. You can see that, you can breathe that. Anytime you go to any Chinese city or region, you can see how much the government cares for its people and how much it is doing for it, which is why the level of satisfaction, for example, with the central government, according to Harvard University, 
according to a longitudinal uh, study by Harvard University, is in the 90th uh, percentile. So if you ask the Chinese themselves whether they have a democracy, they will say yes, and they will feel very well represented, very well validated by their representatives. That said, what does this specific event mean? Well, the 20th National uh, Congress is really the consolidation and the extension of Xi Jinping's uh, term. Uh, and what that signals is that the forces that were pro-West and to a certain extent pro-fragmentation, pro-Western uh, uh, regime change oriented, pro-capitalist have been uh, largely, uh, you know, uh, moved out of the picture and that China will step forward and continue on its program towards attaining a socialist, a moderately prosperous socialist society uh, uh, over the next few decades. The U.S. engagement with China was always uh, a pretext. It was a foreign policy recently admitted that U.S. engagement with China was actually a regime change operation. And she came in and he turned around that dynamic. He got rid of corrupt people who were uh, slowly bleeding the country and trickling its wealth out into the West and, uh, you know, deflating and uh, damaging the economy and its socialist project. And this is why she is considered, quote unquote, to be the great enemy, quote unquote, the great dictator is that he thwarted Western plans for destabilization and, uh, uh, you know, depotentiation of China. And this signals that this is turned around and this track towards a multipolar system is steadily in place. And there is very little that can derail that. Um, it, it, let me, you know, for, for the criticism of China by the West, but let me read something to you. This is Annalena Baerbach. Annalena Baerbach is the foreign minister for journey, Germany. Quote, if I give the promise to people of, in Ukraine, we stand with you as long as you need us. Then I want to deliver. No matter what my German voters think. Let me repeat that. No matter what my German voters think. The West is criticizing a country that pulled 800 people, million people out of poverty and that 90 percent of the people in that country support the central government. At the same time, the leaders of the economic engine of the EU says, ain't no democracy here. We don't care what the people think. This is not a democracy. Your thoughts on that? Well, absolutely true. Uh, I mean, Annalena Baerbock said quite simply uh, what uh, the rest of the EU leadership is thinking. First, the EU is not a democracy. Um, you know, they, uh, there, there is very, very little uh, accountability from the EU central government towards uh, the peoples of the individual European states. But more than that, we have to understand that what we are seeing currently in, uh, you know, uh, extreme halts like Barbat is that they are doing the agenda uh, of the United States and NATO, which is to ensure Western global hegemony at any cost, regardless of the cost to the working classes, the working people of Europe. And to that extent, we have to understand the war 
in the Ukraine, not simply as a proxy war between Russia and the United States or as a war between unipolarity and multipolarity, but really as a war between the ruling global elite of which Barbak uh, aspires to become part of versus the people. And following along that line, uh, Liz Truss likely to pick a fight with China. Uh, On September 5th, members of the UK's Conservative Party chose the next prime minister, Truss. For years, China has a near irrelevance in UK politics. That changed when a range of crises raised China's profile in a highly negative light in 2020. These included fears that China was holding back the truth about COVID, concerns about Huawei providing key parts in the telecom network, Hong Kong national security. You know, in reading this, and and this is from the uh, from Asia Times, it's interesting that the what they list as being concerns, a are pretty much vaporware, or if those are your concerns. Based upon where the world is headed and what's going on, you're really trying to pick a fight over nothing. Absolutely correct. Picking a fight over nothing. There was no substance to the allegations of Huawei tapping or spying. In fact, it's been shown that Huawei, um, the intelligence services themselves, have released documentation showing that they believe that Huawei was absolutely sound. And it was on U.S. arm twisting that they were forced to get rid of a perfectly good provider that was providing excellent services to their constituents. As for Hong Kong, Hong Kong is part of China. It did not have a national security regimen, which became absolutely necessary when the U.S. tried to initiate a color revolution over the past uh, few years. Xinjiang, once again, is absolute vaporware. There is no there there. Absolutely fraudulent misinformation creating a case out of nothing. And um, and COVID, I mean, if anything, China did the world a favor by falling on the epidemic, by falling on the grenade and preventing its spread. And then by, you know, sharing all the public health information that it had, including the genome sequence so that, you know, uh, vaccines could be made rapidly. So on every single one of those allegations, it is a complete and total fraudulent uh, accusation. And for the British to use that as some kind of excuse to gin up or to hedge up some kind of provocation or belligerence against China shows you the complete and utter bankruptcy of the British ruling class, as well as the Asia Times, which published this article. And I think that Um, I mean, if if Britain wants to go to war with China because it wants to be a junior partner to U.S. hegemonic designs, well, I wish it good luck. Uh, You know, China is not the Falkland Islands. Uh, It is not Malaysia. It is not, uh, you know, uh, any of the, you know, 190 plus colonies that it has been bullying. and and I think the British will be in for quite a surprise, certainly on the economic front. Well, you know, I tend to think Liz Truss isn't saying any of this because either she believes it or anything else. 
I see Liz Truss as the ultimate puppet, and she's talking to the people in Foggy Bottom. She's really saying to the neocons in Washington, D.C., I'm 100% on board. Um, yeah, my people are hungry and starving and miserable, but I'm not— that's, And cold. Yeah, and cold, but who cares about them? You know, they're, they're, they're sacrificial lambs. Anyway, just want you to know I'm not overly concerned about this economic stuff at home. I'm on board with your warmongering against whoever. So she's just, to me, saying, I am your puppet. Do with me as you please. Your thoughts? Absolutely correct. You're absolutely correct. She does not have a clear, critical, or original thought. And she's essentially, um, you know, an AI uh, <laughs> parroting, you know, the, the program that is being fed into her. Russia's Sergei Glaziev introduces the new global financial system. Uh, your thoughts here, we've got just about two and a half minutes. Well, this is a trend that is already happening, that the U.S., because of its over-abuse of sanctions and its uh, absconding with sovereign wealth funds uh, from Russia, Iran, and many other countries, it's essentially destroyed the stability, the trust, the fungibility, the liquidity, the inertia against de-dollarization. So countries are moving against the dollar. Uh, you know, China and Russia are, are doing uh, yuan, ruble exchanges for gas. And this is a kind of an inevitable transition that is happening. It's already uh, fragmenting into 46 different countries, according to the World Bank. And what the U.S. is doing by over uh, overusing uh, financial sanctions as a form of fiscal warfare is it's simply accelerating its own demise because the fact that the U.S. can wage war across the world at will without ever having to pay for it is because it has this endless credit card that it gets from dollar recycling. And when that stops, when dollar hegemony ends, then the then that credit card is taken away and the U.S. no longer will have that capacity. So it's sawing off the branch on which it is sitting. I did want to ask you your thoughts. We got about a minute and a half. Your thoughts on the on the passing of the queen and how that um, is being um, the response from formal colonial uh, victims, shall we say? We got about a minute. Well, you know, this is quite extraordinary because, you know, the Queen is the representative of the British Empire. And she has been, you know, for what, uh, seven decades, uh, eight decades now. And although she's a figurehead, uh, at the same time, she does have certain powers within the royal prerogative that have been extraordinarily poisonous to, uh, you know, countries that were former colonies. I'm, I'm thinking, for example, of Australia, where she was actively involved in the coup against Gough Whitlam. And so there is this amorphous set of royal prerogatives that are exercised, and these serve as kind of the outer containment wall to make sure that over this, over and underneath this ostensible uh, regime of democracy that when the deep state, when the powers that be want to execute and establish and assert their power, they do that. And the queen allows that function. KJ No, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly appreciate that analysis. We look forward to having you back. Thank you. Always a pleasure.
Folks, you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Europe's treatment of refugees is racist and murderous. The recent incident of refugees being stranded in the Mediterranean without assistance from coastal forces exemplifies a larger pattern of cruelty by European nations towards those fleeing conflict zones. For insight into this, let's turn to our next guest. He's an investigative journalist, analyst, and author of three books, The Frozen Republic, The Velvet Coup, and America's Undeclared War. Daniel Lazar is always Dan. Welcome back. Uh, Thanks for having me. According to this Al Jazeera report, about 60 refugees, mostly from Lebanon and Syria, stranded in the Mediterranean Sea, have not got any help from European Coast Guards for days, despite distress calls and reports of at least three children among them dying. Instead, they're being watched from a container ship. Such reports of criminal insensitivity are not an aberration. Daniel Lazar, your thoughts, sir? Well, I, I mean, since the uh, since the start of the, uh, the of the war in the Ukraine uh, in last last February, it's been clear that there that there are two kinds of, ref- of refugees as far as the West is concerned. There are bad refugees uh, who come from places like you know like North Africa or 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 Sub-Saharan Africa or other parts of the Middle East or Latin America or Texas, uh, etc. Or Texas, who are who are not entirely, but tend to be have darker skin. Uh, they're often, uh, you know, they're often the victims of U.S. you know military policies that have destroyed their countries, or economic policies that have had a similar effect. And they have been, you know, put on the march. But once they get to the U.S. border, they are treated as harshly as possible, and and for the most part, driven away. Then those are the, those are the bad refugees. And the good refugees, of course, are, um, are, are white people who come from the Ukraine, who are uh, fleeing uh, uh, the consequences of the Russian invasion of uh, February 24th. And since Russia is, you know, is evil incarnate, uh, these people must be good incarnate. So therefore, um, they're treated as heroes. They're given every, uh, you know, every... Uh, benefit possible. I I don't want to denigrate these people, by the way, because they're you know they're many of them are, are perfectly you know uh, the, are people who deserve you know the, the best treatment, uh, who you know who are on the run for no reasons of their own. Um, but you know, but but they don't deserve special treatment by virtue of their lighter complexion or or geographical origin. But that's what we're seeing and. From the start of the war, when people started fleeing the Ukraine, you had Western commentators making astonishing statements like, no, they can't believe it. These are refugees, but, but they aren't dark-skinned. Can you believe it? <laughs> They're people like us who are on the run, you know, just people just like us. So it's, a, it's reflected the, 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 the fundamentally 
racist assumptions that, that underlie Western policy um, and uh, have been brought to the forefront uh, by, you know, by recent events in the, uh, in, in, in the Ukraine. You know, Dan, I'm going to add this. It's interesting time because you look at that and things were obvious. And these we're not talking we're talking about the so-called liberals, the CNNs and MSNBCs, where a lot of these statements were made was whether well, Christians, why they're white, why they're like us. We see all of that. And it brought about a discussion of, well, wait a minute, the U.S. is destabilizing Africa and middle of the Middle East. And when the people leave the destabilization that the NATO and the U.S. has caused, they don't have an open door for them. And with the queen dying, the discussion about the history of brutalization from the, U, from the U, UK empire and other Western empires and colonial uh, empires, I think it's opened an interesting discussion of history that's kind of coming to a, the for, I don't know what to say ahead, the forefront right now. You see what I'm getting at. Your thoughts, Dan? Well, yeah, I mean, you know, the, the, the queen, you know, uh, represent, you know, you know, acceded to the throne of what was still a British empire, which, uh, you know, which, which subjugated, you know, millions of uh, black and brown people, uh, you know, deprived them of their political rights, rights held them in servitude, et cetera. Um, and, and this is considered not only normal, but the sort of part of Britain's civilizing mission. It was good for these people to be held in subjugation by the United Kingdom. Um, you know, and then, so of course, of course, that very idea, you know, just encapsulates a, a vast, you know, range of, of, of reactionary and racist ideas that are bound up with the concept of Western superiority. Um, and, you know, and we're seeing it, and we have seen it again and again. I mean, the, as, the, as the British Empire gave way to the American Empire, America just packaged these old ideas in a new form. You know, so America, you know, just, you know, it, just, it just bombed and strafed and, and brutalized countless uh, black and brown societies uh, and, you know, and, and sent millions of people fleeing for their lives. Um, and so, so that's what we're still seeing today. In fact, if anything, the phenomenon is growing. And to that point, Poland welcomed 6.22 million refugees from Ukraine. Poland has taken in 6.22 million refugees fleeing, as they describe it, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And for the most part, these folks are being given. In fact, it's, it's interesting when you read a lot of these stories, the sense of entitlement that a lot of these folks have. The uh, Poland en enacted a measure to offer wide-ranging support to Ukrainians. The measure grants them access to education, health care, and social benefits. And the United States, through a lot of its funding, is underwriting some of this and a lot of this. And there are people in this country that can't get it here. Yeah. I mean, I mean first of all, I bear in mind that that, that in the 1920s and 30s, Poland uh, 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 included a very large Ukrainian hinterland in, uh, in its, its eastern territories. So in a certain sense, uh, uh, Poland is welcoming these people back home. Number one. Number two, during the interwar period, uh, Poland was also home to about three million Jews. And 
except for the Communist Party, all parties in Poland were in agreement. All parties from the fascist to the liberal agreed that the Jews had to go. There were just too many of them. So in other words, so, so one set of refugees is good. Another set of refugees is, you know, a set of ethnic group is bad. They got to go. The others are welcome men. They've got to go. These are all political decisions, and, but they reflect the most, the most reactionary imperialist uh, ideas. And, and we're seeing these, these, this, this return of this, of this ideological mindset, you know, in all its, in all its ancient glory. You know, we've got another story um, that, uh, uh, of course, uh, um, aligns with um, uh, with that is the Haitian refugees blocked at the border. And this is just September 12, where they, there's a, certainly a, a transcript from a, an interview and a discussion about that. But the bottom line is we see pictures, uh, you know, we talk about the EU, and then we see pictures literally of Haitians at the border being beaten and whipped like slaves. Yeah. We find out that they don't even get the same process as the South and Central Americans who are, you know, get some level of process, granted nothing reasonable or fair. The, the Haitians, they grab them, they stick them on a plane and send them right back to Haiti as the U.S. destabilizes Haiti. Um, your thoughts? Well, yeah. So, I mean, first of all, number one. Oh, and let me add, and and let me add one other thing. And as the U.S. says, we're going to take a hundred thousand Ukrainian refugees. Sorry about that, Dan. Go ahead. All right. I mean, I mean, I, mean, I I've, I've actually done some research into, into Haiti, and Haiti's a, a remarkable case. I mean, first of all, its economy has been devastated um, for a whole variety of reasons. But at the same time that its economy has been devastated, um, its people have been locked in place. They're not allowed to move elsewhere. So imagine if you were in some, uh, you know, some, some, some part of the Rust Belt, you know, somewhere, and your, and your community was falling apart, and you got wind of a good job, you know, 500 miles away. I mean, what you would do is you'd pack your family in your car, you'd go drive 500 miles and, and, and settle into that new job, and life would start improving. People in Haiti can't do that. They are locked in place. They're, they are kept from fleeing this newly created economic desert. And as the, as the Haitian economy has, has, has gone downhill, the government has self-destructed, and Haiti has emerged as a major drug ship transshipment point for, for Coke and other stuff from uh, South America bound for the U.S., where there's a, you know, as you know, an almost infinite appetite for this stuff. Um, it's turned into a major drug transshipment point, which has seen a fantastic explosion in gang warfare. So, so Haiti, therefore, but all the, all the escape routes are, are sealed. So millions of people are locked in place, prevented from fleeing this Disaster zone. Uh, I mean, it's it's a it's it's this 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 you know the we have we have the globalization of goods and and financial services, but we have the opposite when it comes to the working class, where unlike a century ago, workers can't flee and search of better opportunities. They're locked in place. They're 
forced to stay put and starve or, you know, or, or, you know, or be tortured by local, you know, drug gangs, uh, et cetera. And we see this pattern again and again in the, in the Northern Triangle of uh, Honduras, El Salvador, and Guatemala, in, uh, in Venezuela and, and, uh, and Colombia. The, the list is endless. And, and all these people are just people who want economic opportunity for themselves and their, and their, and their, their kids, but they're, they're prevented from seeking that. Unlike my forebears, who, you know, who immigrated to America, uh, you know, and, and, and countless others as well. We have just about a minute left. I, with everything you said, I would only take exception to your reference to self-inflicted because this is at the behest and the direction and the oversight of the United States. At every element of Haitian politics, the United States is controlling. We're assassinating their leaders. We're we're putting puppets in place. We are locking down their 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 resources and access to their own funding. That would be my only exception. We got forty five seconds. I, I don't recall where I said self inflicted. I think the, the, the I think after the government self destructed, which meant that the government simply fell apart. It was unable to sustain itself. It dissolved into into bossism and and and, and infighting, et cetera, et cetera. But I if I if I misunderstood you, I apologize. But I, I, I so far, but I, but I, but I, I fully agree that you know that that Haiti is a victim of economic and political forces far beyond its control. It is it is a it is a it is a, it is a, a an innocent bystander, you know, in a colossal car wreck, you know, in which you know bodies and vehicles go flying. Hey, that's it. Thank you very much, Daniel Lazar. As always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly appreciate it. Look forward to having you back. Thanks so much. Folks, you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's another hour on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Hamas leader Haniyeh visits Russia with high-level delegation. A senior Hamas delegation arrived in Moscow for talks with the Russian foreign minister to discuss mutual ties. For insight into this, we turn to our next guest. He's a broadcaster, journalist, and analyst based in Beirut, Lebanon, Laith Marouf, as always, Laith, welcome back. Thank you for having me. So the head of Hamas's political bureau, Ishmael Haniyeh, arrived in Moscow on Saturday to hold high-level talks with Russian officials, including Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov. According to a statement by the Palestinian movement, Haniyeh was accompanied by Hamas Deputy Chief Saleh Aruri and members of the political bureau Musa Abu Marzouk and Maher Salah. A Hamas spokesman said that Moscow had invited the movement to visit Russia to discuss mutual ties and the current situation in the occupied Palestinian territories. A couple of things that, I, that, that struck me as interesting, Laith. One, that it's the political bureau that went 
to Moscow that, according to the Hamas spokesman, Moscow invited them to Russia as opposed to welcoming welcoming them at their request. And the fact that they that they're there to talk about what's happening in the Palestinian territories. Leif Marouf. Yeah, I mean, uh, clearly Russia is interested right now in outreaching to Palestinian organizations uh, other than the PLO, uh, the Fatah-controlled uh, uh, body uh, by President uh, Abbas. And uh, we saw that in the last few months, you know, visits uh, by Islamic Jihad and the PLFP to Russia again under their uh, invitation. And so what we see is maybe uh, finally some movement on Russia to uh, change course uh, in terms of what's the uh, happening in Palestine and, and in Western Asia as a whole, or at least hints of it, because we've seen, you know, uh, Russia its stance over the last 30 years since the uh, Oslo Accords were signed between the PLO and the uh, Zionist entity, uh, being you know just in the shadow of the United States uh, in those negotiations processes and or um, effects on the ground militarily. So we you know if if the Russia actually wants to uh, punish the United States fully for its uh, attempts in Ukraine to create a, a new flank on uh, close to Moscow. Uh, it must uh, change its uh, positions specifically in Syria and in Palestine uh, and allow for a more hostile confrontation to the assets of the United States. Um, and uh, maybe we are seeing hints of that. I don't want to exaggerate what uh, this could mean but uh, it's definitely, as we see, a possibility of uh, greater war between uh, Lebanon and uh, the Zionist entity that could spill out to other parts of Western Asia. This must be on the minds of everybody. Let me ask you this. Um, you know, traditionally, and we know that, that you know, the, a lot of Jewish people from in in. Um, Israel have passports for Russia and Israel, that there's a tight um, uh, uh, cultural and economic tie between the two. But it seems as though the Ukrainian um, uh, 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 conflict is creating a dynamic where people really do kind of have to choose sides. People that normally could get away with not doing it now really kind of have to choose sides between whether they're going along with the U.S. empire and its um, its moves to try to secure world hegemony. Leith. Yeah, I mean, many of uh, the listeners may not know the historical connections between Zionism and, and the what was happening in um, the uh, western parts of the Russian Empire in its uh, dying days uh, may not uh, realize how this is a very important thing. You know, uh, the Zionist uh, movement born in the 1880s uh, came and was inspired by the process of the ethnic cleansing of uh, Turkic and uh, Tatar Muslims on the northern coast of the Black Sea by the Russian Empire after it took the uh, those lands from the Ottoman Empire and uh, the Russians at the time um, 
you know, uh, renamed all these locations with like Odessa or or others, uh, according to Greek uh, mythology names, and uh, brought in many of the Jewish Slavic people from Poland and um, the Baltics, uh, you know, down to the southern parts of uh, Ukraine, the northern parts of the Black Sea, and what became to be known as the um, Jewish Plains of Settlement, uh, which eventually led to the pogroms of the Russians when the Christian Slavic people got jealous, let's say, of this process of allowing uh, Jewish Slavic people to uh, to settle these lands that got just ethnically cleansed. And that inspired Zionism. The idea that uh, Jewish white people can have the right to ethnically cleanse Muslims and non uh, white people and settle their land came from the southern the settlements of uh, southern Ukraine. So that's an important thing. And of course, many of the Zionist settlers right now come from both Ukraine and and Russia. There is huge ties, and Russia is in a situation right now where it has to choose. It can't play all sides, specifically in the battle in Syria, where we see the Israelis constantly bombing um, the Syrian infrastructure and uh, threatening to bomb even more, um, and just sitting there and watching as that uh, happens, and or in the uh, battle for the liberation of Palestine. If Russia wants the axis of resistance to be on its side, it's becoming very tenuous. It's uh, flip-flopping and playing both sides in this situation. Fear, a fatwa and bloodshed inside the battle for Iraq's green zone. This is from Middle East Eye. Muqtada al-Sadr's followers found themselves abandoned and under fire. Now the guns have fallen silent and bodies buried. Splits are emerging in the satirist movement. What's what's going on here and how does what does this mean for Iraq going forward? It's a very uh, iffy situation in Iraq right now. Um, it's hard to predict uh, the possibilities, um, but the it, it it has been a good thing that Muqtada Sadr uh, stepped away from uh, politics. We hope that uh, he, you know, those who, because he also forbade any of the um, politicians that got elected, the members of parliament that got elected on the ticket of the Southernist movement. Uh, he threatened that, uh, that you know, all of them need to resign and cannot uh, participate in the parliament under another banner other than the Southernist, uh, of course, except uh, with the threat of violence uh, to make sure that they don't shoot. And this is where it becomes dangerous. You know, we know Muqtada Sadr is, has been erratic. Uh, that's the least we can say about his behavior on the political scene in uh, Iraq. Uh, some people may uh, laugh it off and say the guy is just a lunatic. But it's becoming more and more looking like he his whole role uh, there, specifically with his relations to the Saudis, uh, is to create as much uh, instability and chaos and constantly uh, provide shocks to the system of Iraq. Uh, and that's his, his uh, role as it's been unfolding for the last uh, two years now. 
Here's an important story, I think, <clears throat> for a number of reasons. Trump hints, hints at true significance of Bagram Airfield. According to the 45th U.S. president, Washington needed the site in Afghanistan to keep an eye on a Chinese nuclear plant. A couple of things. For all of the Trump people who think he's some kind of anti-imperialist peace guy, he comes out and basically says, we were holding on to this country. And remember what we heard. We've got to be there for the women who can't go to school or whatever. He's basically showing that the U.S empire was holding on to a country so that they could keep a part of it to go after another country. But he goes on to say, sure, I'd have given Afghanistan up, but I'd have kept the Bagram Air Force Base as though the U.S. owns the world. And we can just say, well, you can have this part of your country, but we're going to keep a little part of it here. He, it, it just shows that he is the same imperialist, little different flavor. You might like strawberry imperialist and he's butter pecan. But but it just goes to show that that mentality that says we own the Middle East. Those Muslim people just have to give us what we want and do what we tell them to do. Your thoughts? Oh, yeah. I mean, look, these uh, flights that were coming into Bagram Airport, uh, you know, we're flying at a high altitude with uh, all these uh, intelligence and collection devices. And we're, you know, clearly able to capture images so far away and all the detailed movements around these uh, nuclear facilities that China had uh, across from the border of Afghanistan. And, you know, can you imagine if uh, Chinese surveillance planes at high altitudes were flying uh, across the waters from uh, the United States or the border on the south uh, with Texas. Uh, I mean, you know, we would all you know, know what the response of the Americans would be. And this is how we see every night uh, the Israeli flights doing huge scans across from just uh, the international waters of the Mediterranean being able to survey the whole Syrian and, and Lebanese landscape uh, and all the movements of uh, military facilities. This is leading us right now with the annou announcement of Trump to have just evidence to that. But we all know that has, this has been happening, and I'm sure the Chinese knew that this was happening. And these, uh, coupled with the multiple incursions in, in, in the waters by fleets uh, that are going right now in the Taiwan Strait <laughs> that include one Canadian ship. Uh, I don't know why the Canadians are going there <laughs> also. Uh, it's clearly they're, they're pushing their luck. Uh, and I hope uh, we don't have uh, a confrontation eventually like we had in Ukraine with, with the uh, NATO alliance pushing uh, close to the borders of Moscow. Israeli official touts efforts to dissuade U.S. from rejoining Iran nuclear deal. Officials says it believes potential signing no sooner than after November midterms. Jerusalem's pressure stopped further concessions in Tehran's favor. When we stress what is essential to Israel, the U.S. listens. That along with Iran says European statement on nuclear deal talks unconstructive. Germany, France and Britain released a statement accusing Tehran of not being serious about restoring the JCPOA. We've got two minutes. Yeah, I mean, it, it, I, I told you many times on this uh, on this show, I, I believe that the, this deal would not be resigned and that the United States is just wasting time. Uh, to prepare its pieces uh, on the uh, 
chessboard in Western Asia. And as we see with the constant harassment of Iran through the International Atomic Agency um, and, and the latest report condemning Iran and being so political in its claims about the uh, amounts of uh, enriched uranium that Iran has, it was clear that uh, the Europeans will play a role as, as they did. They came out and condemned uh, Iran, and then now uh, the Israelis are playing their card, and we will see most probably uh, a confrontation. But this is why it's I come back to the issue of Lebanon. It will be the trigger. Before any trigger happens to a war directly with Iran, uh, it is in the interest also, actually, of the axis of resistance to attack first and from the front of, of Lebanon. Laith Marouf, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back. You have a great evening. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Orinoco Tribune reports Venezuela rejects Washington's statement on imprisoned U.S. citizens. This past Saturday, the Venezuelan government rejected, through a communique, the statement made on Friday by U.S. Department of State spokesperson Ned Price labeling U.S. Marine veteran in V. MVM Inc. quote-unquote contractor Matthew Heath's detention as wrongful and his arrest as based on specious charges. For insight into this, we turn to our next guest. He's a published book author and two-time Pulitzer Prize finalist with more than 20 years of journalistic experience. He's a former Washington Post bureau chief and former winning foreign correspondent on two continents. John Jeter, as always, John, welcome back. Uh, the pleasure is mine. So according to Venezuela's attorney general, uh, Tarek William Saab, at the time of the capture, Heath had allegedly already taken photos of strategic military and oil refining facilities in Zulia and Falcon states. He entered Venezuela illegally from Colombia through uh, Zulila uh, state, and his final destination was Aruba. Heath was planning acts of sabotage in oil and electricity facilities. They found a grenade launcher, a submachine gun, C4 explosives, and a satellite phone. After being captured in the Mene de Morora municipality on the border between Falcon and Zulia, he asked to speak with U.S. Embassy staff. Talk about this from a couple of angles. First, Sounds like Matthew Heath got caught planning to blow some stuff up. Second, Ned Price describing Matthew Heath's detention as wrongful. That's the same language the U.S. used to describe Brittany Griner's detention. And what that means to me is the U.S. doesn't respect sovereignty because one of the elements of sovereignty is a government's ability to enforce its law within a defined geographic space. John Jeter. 
Yeah, no, I, I, I you know, I, I guess I'm slow on the uptake, but this story finally convinced me that the State Department in particular, uh, their audience are people who are not really paying attention. Like, that's who they're actually addressing. They're trying to sort of uh, keep people in line by pulling the wool over their eyes or keeping the wool pulled over their eyes, because that would be the only people who this would make sense to, right? In other words, uh, it, to everyone else, if you're paying even slight attention to this, it looks like a duck, it <laughs> quacks like a duck, and the conclusion is that it's a duck, right? I mean, this is a man <laughs> who was caught with everything. It's almost like the guy who's caught with the, you know, uh, what do you call it, a, a rape kit and the trunk of his car. It's like, well, what else would you have that for, right? <laughs> so it's uh, it's stunning. It really is. It's just we just keep this, we seem to keep going further and further down this spider hole, uh, and the United States just doesn't seem to have any. Uh, uh, alternative or any other gear, right? They just stay in the slow lane, uh, in the slow lane, and they can't seem to speed up or stop or reverse course or anything like that. I, I just, uh, and, and let me say this too, just on a personal note, I was reading the story that you sent me, and it reminded me of my first trip to Venezuela as a foreign correspondent for the Washington Post, uh, and this was in 2003, I think, uh, and um, I had a little bit of a problem with my editors because my phone bill for my, I think I was there for about a week, my phone bill was a little bit high, a little bit higher than usual for a uh, reporting trip abroad. And I, I realized, you know, I, they were, I think they were insinuating that I had made some personal phone calls. And I looked at the bill and I hadn't. And, but I realized that the reason that all my, uh, that my bill was so high was because all of my, uh, all of my phone calls to the opposition began with either a 202 or 703 exchange, <laughs> which, I, no, I mean, really, I was in Caracas, but whenever I went to talk to someone in the opposition, they all had uh, a Washington, D.C. area phone numbers. I, I, I'm not making this up. I remember this so clearly. And it struck me because I hadn't been to Venezuela. I didn't really know the story. And then it hit me, oh. Right. This is this is the CIA's handiwork. Juan, so, Juan Guaido has a Virginia area code. I, I would I would bet he does. I'm almost <laughs> sure he does. I mean, they're not they're not even trying to hide it. You know, this is just ridiculous, man. But uh, uh, yeah, I, you know, it, it's just we, we just we just keep going down the spider hole. And it just, just seems like there's no uh, there's no light at the end of the tunnel. Well, you know, uh, here's the other thing, too. I mean, when you look back at, you know, the Cuban airliner that was blown up, uh, Posado Carriles, the, the CIA agent that was involved in that, you go on and on. The U.S. has been involved in actual terrorist activity against their um, perceived adversaries in the global south for for years, particularly Latin America. But now I think one of the problems they have is right is now. The because of social media, because of the Internet, it's all fine. You can do it in the 1960s when people don't have any way of finding this thing out in minutes. But people can find these things out easily and quickly. And so now I think this is one of the reasons where why the um, the the focus on shutting people down online and the focus on stopping people from having conversations online is so important because people can learn these things quickly. And like you said, yeah, if you're ignorant, you'll think this is great, but it's so easy to find these things out now. Your thoughts, John? I agree completely. And, and not to switch gears, but I've been I've been watching 
the sort of binary conversation about Queen Elizabeth II's death, right? And on the one hand, you have on CNN the sort of exaltation of, you know, the 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 the, the, the monarchy, the British monarchy, and this, you know, this elegant figure, on, uh, you know, who kept her country together during very hard times. And there's this alternative narrative on social media, particularly among blacks and among Africans, right, about this colonizer, right? <laughs> or certainly someone who was complicit in colonization. I think this is the same thing, right? Where you see increasingly social media, it's, it, it, you know, there, there is something good to be said about social media, which is that it gives people a platform to challenge the sort of ruling class narrative. And I think that's so true with, uh, with Queen Elizabeth II and her death, but also I think increasingly with Latin America, you know, the, the, the backyard of the United States. And, and, and you, you mentioned Posada Carriles. I think that's so interesting too, because again, this, this you know, uh, uh, how, how, how imperialism, uh, as Martin Luther King said, you know, it's, it's, it's racism, poverty, and militarism that ties everything together. And Posada Carriles, when he was questioned by, I think someone who was sympathetic to, to the to his cause when he was questioned about blowing this Venezuelan um, airline out of the sky with I think I think it was a Venezuelan uh, it might have been a Cuban airline with with Venezuelan uh, athletes I think was, was correct it. correct and and Posada Carriles uh, you know when he was when he was asked about it he says it was just a bunch of n words right I, I think those narratives um, and and their their ability to sort of proliferate throughout the, the the world wide web. That's a very powerful thing. I don't know if it is necessarily powerful, powerful enough to counter uh, the ruling the ruling class narrative, the, the sort of mainstream narrative. But it but it is uh, it, it's sort of like a, a, a gradual, uh, uh, almost like water torture, right? It just sort of erodes that that ruling narrative over time. And I think that's a very positive thing. You mentioned the head of the imperialist state called the British Empire. Uh, Asia Times has a piece, Cause Not to Celebrate the Queen. I'm going to read these three quick paragraphs because I think this sums it all up. From the very beginning, Queen Elizabeth II's reign was deeply connected to Britain's global empire and the long and bloody process of decolonization. Indeed, she became queen while on a royal visit to Kenya in 1952. After she left, the colony descended into one of the worst conflicts of the British colonial period, declaring a state of emergency in October of 52. The British would go on to kill tens of thousands of Kenyans before it was over. Is it possible to disentangle the person, her personal attributes of a genteel and kindly woman from her role as the crowned head of a declining global empire? Uh, and, and it's not only that, but when you take into account her family, she was a cousin of King Leopold. Yes, yes. Who, dec who decimated the Congo. That's right. And, and also what a lot of people don't realize is that Buckingham Palace was actually built for the black queen, Charlotte. Queen Charlotte, her husband, King Edward, built, the hunting, built Buckingham Palace for her. So rumor has it, God. this woman got some soul in her system. Uh, I never knew that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because Charlotte had 14 kids, I think. 
And 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 I think it was Edward was her husband said the kids need some some space. So he built Buckingham Palace for uh, Queen Charlotte, who was uh, the first and only black member of the royal family. Because she was she was called Queen Charlotte the Moor. Oh, I had no idea. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I, the the more the you know I I, I sort of intuitively uh, uh, vomited at the <laughs> at the at the news coverage of uh, Queen Elizabeth II. You know I, I I know of course that she's complicit in crimes against humanity. Mm-hmm. Something which you know is never mentioned on uh, on the mainstream news, the cable news no. networks. Uh, but but the more that I find out about her uh, since her passing. Uh, the more I'm convinced that the, the woman was, and, and she's not alone in this, she's not even an outlier. She was a monster, right? I don't know how anyone can be complicit in such suffering, human suffering. And the only word she seems to have is carry on, right? And, and, and the mainstream media's complicity in covering for her, right? I, I, someone said, uh, or someone wrote, that the, uh, the United Kingdom passed a law in the 1960s, I guess sort of like affirmative action requiring, um, maybe this was right when the Windrush generation was, was arriving from Jamaica uh, in the, in the UK, United Kingdom. They passed a law that uh, I guess state institutions had to hire uh, so many, a quota or so many uh, uh, blacks, uh, African descendants. And the monarchy led by Queen Elizabeth II, I assume, uh, pushed to be uh, exempted from this rule, uh, and they did not hire black servants until I think a decade later or something like that. Uh, I, you know, I, I haven't checked that, but I, it certainly sounds like it could be true. Uh, and, and and then you know, and I don't keep up with this stuff, but then the the issues with uh, is it Harry Prince Harry who's married to this woman of color? Yes, right. And, yes, and 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 there insistence that the racism that they face from within the royal family, although they don't name names, um, that that was almost uh, unbearable. Or not almost, I guess I guess it was unbearable. That's why they- That's why they uh, left. Abdicated, yeah, that's why they left, exactly. So, I, you know, it's just, uh, but you know, it, 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 again, it, it's this, it's this, this, the, the hegemons are fighting a war of narratives, right, mm-hmm. against us, right? It's their narrative and it's our narrative. And as the, as the two diverge more and more each day, and I first started noticing this, I would say, about 20 years ago, even before social media, but social media aids in the best, a best this divergence. And at, some, at a certain point, you know, the language just doesn't matter anymore. You've got, it's almost like the Charlie Brown uh, uh, cartoons, right, where the adults speak. And it's just this <laughs> womp, indecipherable. Womp, womp. Yeah, th- that's where we're headed for now, right? And it's not just the United States either. I think it's all over the world where you see people, mm. uh, not, in the, not in the United States as much, but you see people out in the streets protesting, making demands, and the and the and their government, their rulers are just completely unresponsive because their clients, their uh, 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 constituents, is international finance, right? right? And so we've got we just we just got this irreconcilable differences. And I think the sociologists or the linguists have a phrase for that when the language no matter no longer matters and you resort to I think they call it static communication, which is violence. Right. That's what it is. Feel that's what it feels like. It's closing in on us. Yes. John Jeter, as always, thank you so much for your time, man. Greatly appreciate that analysis. And we look forward to having you back. 
Thank you, brother. Hey, folks, you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Orinoco Tribune has a piece by Pepe Escobar entitled, Germany's Energy Suicide and Autopsy. When green fanatic Robert Habeck, posing as Germany's economy minister, said earlier this week, quote, we should expect the worst, end quote, in terms of energy security, he conveniently forgot to spell out how the whole farce is a made in Germany cum made in Brussels crisis. For insight into this, let's turn to our next guest. He's an associate professor of economics at the University of Missouri, Kansas City. He's also the past president of the National Economics Association, Dr. Linwood Tawheed. As always, sir, welcome back. Thank you. So Pepe writes, anyone with a brain following the ghastly Eurocrat machinations in Brussels was aware of the main plot, yet hardly anyone among average EU citizens, Haybeck, Chancellor, Liver Sausage Schultz, the European Commission Green Energy VP, Timmermans, EC, Dometrix, Ursula von der Leyen, they all are involved. In a nutshell, as Egdal I'm sorry, Engdahl describes it. It's about the EU plan to deindustrialize one of the most energy efficient industrial concentrations on the planet. Your thoughts, Dr. Linwood Tahid. Yeah, I think uh, Escobar's use of the term suicide is very appropriate here. Uh, what we've seen with this, um, uh, the, the sanctions and, and other kinds of uh, issues uh, uh, causing energy problems in Europe is that the Green Party has been totally captured. Uh, the Green Party, which, of course, uh, was uh, look, uh, trying to address, or at least uh, saying they were wanting to address climate change and uh, go to renewable energy, has now uh, decided that, uh, the heck with that, they're, they're going to go back to coal and wood and anything else uh, they, can, they can put, uh, uh, perhaps get some energy from in order to avoid um, having to buy oil or gas from from Russia. Uh, They put their green energy process on hold. And what Escobar is is indicating here is that this is not a new thing, that this plan has been going on for quite a while uh, to to thoroughly capture uh, European energy um, uh, consumption uh, with uh, U.S. products. You know, I I, I tell you what, I like the word suicide. Uh, I like the word sacrifice a little bit better Mm -hmm. in that, you know, the U.S. basically said to, you know, the stewards, I guess we'll call them, uh, the governors that that, that the, the U.K. would call them during their colonial days of their colonies, Look, we need a sacrifice for the neocon project, and your economy is uh, at the top of the list. And the the governors of the colony said, "Not a problem." So it's like mm-hmm. the in the same way that the Ukrainian bodies are being sacrificed for the neocon projects, the same exact thing is happening economically to the U- to the European people. Your thoughts? Yes, it's, it's the neocon project in terms of of war. 
uh, is the neoliberal pro- project in terms of, of the economy. And as someone has said, uh, finance is war by any other means. And so those two neocons and neolibs are joined together in, in, in the sacrifice of, of European citizens uh, to, to war and to greater profit for, for fossil fuel. But, but, but understand, uh, U.S. citizens are also on this ride. Uh, whatever happens to Europe is going to also be reflected in what happens to ordinary people, to everyday people in the U.S. Uh, U.S. Uh, fossil fuel and uh, military uh, producers will, will, will get m- uh, much fatter on this process. European and American citizens will suffer. And there's a piece in Sputnik, the um, recession in Europe may actually be positive for the U.S., The U.S. could benefit from a recession in Europe, which could come as a result of a reduction in Russian gas supplies, but will suffer if Moscow refuses to export oil. Uh, And talk about that, particularly in the context of this supposedly brilliant idea Mm -hmm. by, if not the Fed, by what's her name? Um, Janet Yellen. Thank you. To put a cap on, on Russian oil prices. Yeah, yeah, we've uh, when when I first heard uh, some some time ago about a cap on Russian oil uh, and gas, uh, it, it it seemed kind of ridiculous because you also had sanctions saying that you were going to stop using Russian oil and gas. So if you're not going to use those products, then you don't need to oil cap them. Uh, the 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 thinking that is emerging among those folks is that if they put an oil cap on Russia, if Russia wants to continue its revenue flow, it'll have to. Um, it'll have still have to supply oil, uh, but it'll it'll supply it at a at a lower price. Now Russia is already uh, supplying oil at a discount to China and India. Uh, the Chinese and Indian uh, uh, the, the economies are buying oil from Russia at about thirty dollars per barrel. So if you're going to stop that flow, you have to put an oil cap <laughs> lower than thirty dollars a barrel, which would be ridiculous. Uh, the, the, the Russians have, have uh, responded, uh, I guess, appropriately, but per- apparently unexpectedly, by saying that if an oil cap is put on, a uh, price cap is put on, they will not sell their oil to any countries that would, uh, would go with the cap. And, and so there will be a complete, if this cap goes through, there will be a complete uh, shutdown of oil. And then uh, there's also, uh, they're also thinking about a, a, a gas cap as well to, to, to Europe. Uh, that will do more than cause a recession in Europe. It will cause a depression in Europe. Uh, the only place then for the Europeans to get oil and natural gas would essentially be from the U.S., at, at windfall profit prices. So, yes, that would be good for the U.S. fossil fuel manufacturers. It still won't be good for, for U.S. citizens because the price of oil and gas will mean that uh, th- those prices are going to skyrocket in the U.S. So big, big, uh, big industry oil and gas will, will benefit by bringing in new customers. And, and, and capitalism has to do this. It has to continuously uh, bring in new customers and if those customers are, are, are unwilling to, to, to give up their, only, their own self-sufficiency, uh, then, then the capitalist has to figure out a way to break that self-sufficiency. And, and they're using this as uh, these caps and, and sanctions as a way to do that. There are those who projected very early on in this conflict that 
this was really one of the primary objectives yes. of not turning up Nord Stream 2. The whole thing was for the United States to capture the international energy market. Yes, uh, my, my, my colleague at UMKC, uh, Michael Hudson, wrote um, uh, a, a, an article very early in this before the, uh, the, the, the Russian uh, Ukraine, the Russians came, came across the border. Uh, about that, that the real the real um, uh, target for this uh, uh, ratcheting up of conflict was Europe. It really wasn't Russia. It was to bring make sure that Europe uh, becomes um, independent of Russia, but dependent on the U.S. Um, and, and the way I see it, and I'm no expert on the uh, you know the the, the 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 hydrocarbon industry, but it seems to me that every step that they have taken to hurt Russia, whatever the case may be, when it comes to hydrocarbon, mm-hmm. has driven the price up. There doesn't seem to me to be a lot of things that you can do mucking around with the hydrogen oil and gas industry that's not going to drive. The price up. So it seems like every action they take, it creates some level of artificial scarcity, mm-hmm. drives the price up. Russia makes more money. We have seen another article, Russia's um, profits are soaring and hurt themselves. One could almost think that it was intended by somebody. Well, and quickly, if I could, to that point, Garland, not only that, but it also seems as though every move the United States has made was already anticipated by Russia, and they implement a, a workaround to it, and they just keep moving forward. Well, the Russians, at least since 2014, when you had the Maidan uh, revolution in, in, in Ukraine, uh, the, the Russians have understood that they needed to reduce their, their, um, their uh, economic relations with the West. I mean, main, trying to maintain those with, with Europe, but particularly with the U.S., because the U.S., uh, was was uh, you know it's uh, aimed at uh, making uh, at, 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 at destroying the Russian economy, and so uh, Putin uh, has been on this process of, of self sufficiency uh, since then. The only thing that that the Russians are significantly sell to the West is oil and gas. I mean there are other there are other products that are important to the West, but in terms of significant revenue, and uh, and the Russians uh, in 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 joining China and creating this multipolar world, has found other customers for that oil and gas, and so and so as long as those that that 75 percent of the rest of the world is not joining in these sanctions, Russia is is not going to be uh, significantly hurt by whatever the West does. The West, however, will be significantly hurt by 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 uh, lack of access to oil, Russian oil and gas. Russian energy revenues forecast, following along the same conversation, forecast to soar. Additional earnings are expected to reach $6.6 billion in September. Mm-hmm. Russia, Russia expects to receive a boost in revenues from energy exports this month, uh, $6.7 billion, uh, adding to August's additional earnings of $1.4. Uh, yes, and, and, and uh, it's also pointed out here that the Russians do not intend to buy foreign currency with that uh, with that extra revenue. Uh, they they've uh, I guess learned that lesson uh, if they they weren't anticipating it that their their foreign reserves would be would be taken as, uh, by by Western banks and so they're not not intending to do that. Now that means if they're going to do something with that extra revenue, it will turn uh, more to to their Eurasian partners. Uh, in in uh, a, using that revenue for expansion as opposed to to the West, 
um, uh, China and, and India are, incre- are in fact increasing their purchases of, of Russian oil and gas. And, and, and there's also a kind of a game being played here because uh, the, the in, in India is buying more Russian oil and gas, but they're also selling more Russian, more oil and gas. Uh, which, uh, you know, uh, lets us know that, that, that Europeans are using the Indians, what they call a cutout. Uh, they're not buying directly from Russia, but they're buying the same gas through India. India is also doing, doing quite well at buying, uh, oil at, uh, at $30 a barrel and then selling it at, at $100 a barrel. And as we get out, you were you talked months ago about mixing the oil and that once you get a, a quarter or a half a tanker of oil from another source, you mix the two and now it's no longer considered Russian oil. Right. So they've been playing that game as well. We got 30 seconds. Yeah, they've been playing that game and uh, that happens on the high seas. And uh, and, and uh, that's a game that uh, if the if the Europeans are going to continue to pay. Uh, they they uh, may be able to to get more oil than they would uh, if they didn't have the sanctions. On the other hand, this price cap makes this insane to expect that the <laughs> Indians are going to sell okay. some oil at a Russian price cap. Linwood Tahid, as always, sir, thank you so much for your time. Appreciate that analysis. Looking forward to having you back. Thank you, sir. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. FBI harasses solidarity activists from Puerto Rico for delivering medical aid to Cuba. The president of the Cuba Solidarity Committee, the CSC of Puerto Rico, Milagros Rivera, denounces the intimidation operation unleashed by federal agents through calls and visits to several activists of the committee and members of the Juan Rios Rivera Brigade. For insight into this, let's turn to our next guest. He hosts Voices with Vision on WPFW 89.3 FM in Washington, D.C. He's a Pan-Africanist and internationalist organizer, and he's a member of the Black Alliance for Peace, Netfa Freeman. As always, Netfa, welcome back. It's always, it's an honor. So claiming that they were investigating the Cuba Solidarity Committee, they tried to find out details about the committee's spokesperson and the recent trip to Cuba by the brigade under the category various types of support for the Cuban people. On its tour of the country, the brigade delivered sanitary donations to fight against COVID-19 in hospitals and engaged in cultural and educational exchanges with the people. Netfa, this sounds a lot like the FBI raid or attack on the Uhuru headquarters, which is just, I guess, business as usual for for the FBI. Your thoughts? Yeah, it, it's. I think the the comparison is uh, definitely appropriate, appropriate, and uh, between the the FBI raid of the Uhuru House and and the African People's Social Party and this the 
Cuba Solidarity Committee of, the, of Puerto Rico. And what I think it speaks to is the increased uh, desperation, I think, of the powers that be. There's, there's a whole lot about their pervasive imperialist policies, including, you know, the, the, how they want to want people to perceive and how they're faring in terms of their com- competition and hegemon efforts of hegemony with Russia and China. And in this instance, in Latin America, particularly with Cuba, right now, Cuba and, and its effort, the, the ruling class in the United States has been uh, what you call unanimous and wanting to, and this bipartisan or, or bipartisan uh, effort, nonpartisan, so-called non, uh, non, you know, no bipartisan would be called bipartisan uh, efforts to try to undermine Cuba. Uh, they they might differ on some little small aspects of it, but they remain unanimous in that effort. But what but it's in, uh, it's inconsistent or, or it doesn't match or 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 is contrary to the world's legit uh, the world's perception of Cuba. It doesn't match anything. There's nothing that Cuba does that demonstrates that it's a threat to any other country in the world, and, and, and you know, not, notwithstanding the United States itself. People know about the – more people know now about the longstanding efforts of the United States government to undermine the Cuba, and people know about other things that Cuba does, and that it demonstrates its, its – um, Internationalist in nature, uh, like for example, the you know the brigades, the medical brigades that they send all over, the teaching medical uh, facilities, you know, uh, medicine, helping people become doctors, even people in the United States. So this, so this perception that the United States does this tactic of trying to demonize and make countries look bad that they want to undermine is is not working at all with Cuba and even the popular opinion. Is not. And so what they're doing now, because they still need to overthrow it, they still want to overthrow it, um, is trying to uh, to disrupt the efforts of solidarity groups and scare the uh, solidarity groups. And it's the same thing with anything else that are uh, that are actually involved or uh, in, in has contributed to giving a proper perception of what the Cuban revolution means to the world. You know, one of the things I was involved in, as you know, my background is in law enforcement, and, and, and one of the things I was involved in is assessing the the use of resources, right? If we were like, when I was a police department, if we get a call and somebody says there's a missing dog, as opposed to, should we use those resources for that because somebody else is getting stabbed? <laughs> you really want to, okay, here's my point. The FBI you got all kinds of things going on, bank robberies, uh, kidnappings, human trafficking. And this FBI is doing what? They're chasing activists who are bringing powdered milk and medical supplies. That's right. what the government uses its law enforcement resources for, not to chase people who will be kidnapping and murdering and human trafficking. It's a sad state of affairs now, now to recognize that the FBI is used to go after peaceful people who who are doing peaceful things as opposed to crime, and it shows to me the priorities of this administration. Your thoughts? Mm, well, and not just this administration. This is the way it's been all along. But go ahead. <laughs> you, you know what? That the, before you made it, that was exactly what I was about to because in it, and then this administration it makes the twelfth, the twelfth administration to uh, consistently to to tighten the blockade. Whether it's Democrat or Republican, we saw um, the Clinton administration do it. We saw, of course, the Bush administration, then the Clinton, the first Daddy Bush, and, and then Clinton, uh, the Bill Clinton, then then son Bush, and then Obama 
feigned as if there was some effort to normalize relations. There were there were not as many tightens or enforcement of blockade measures, and I call them blockade measures, but embargoes and and we're talking about fining of banks and you know making it difficult for Cuba and other uh, other institutions and other countries to trade with Cuba to deal in re- normal international relations of trade. And we're talking about, like you said, medicine, but also food and things like this, things that, are, that really should not and are uh, violations of human rights. They're actually violations, uh, human rights violations, according to the United Nations. And that, you know, the Biden administration is upholding that and that when you look at it, it's not just the misallocation of the resources of the FBI, but the misallocation of all the institutions of the United States. A capitalism imperialism requires, uh, you know, these types of enforcement, these type of measures, and that they are starkly different from what really would be helping the, the U.S. people, in, in fact, have better, you know, have a, a better standard of living, uh, have social safety nets, and also even people around the world. The, Uni- uh, the United States, we know, shovels so much money to military and so many other things. A very stark uh, example would be what Cuba just went through with the fire in Matanzas. A lot of people have heard about it, the, the explosion of the, uh, the facilities, the energy facilities in Matanzas, and that they really needed some assistance there. Uh, a lot of assistance, a lot of countries came to their assistance. It was still very, very tragic. A lot of people death uh, and a lot of destruction in terms of their energy. And that uh, the United States offered a phone call and some advice. All of the resources the United States has, all of the military equipment, all the stuff they're giving to Ukraine, all the money they're allocating, um, you know, billions of dollars of stuff, that's all they could do for Cuba in, in this uh, time of need. But yet they can uh, divert energies towards uh, intimidating those who have expressed any type of solidarity with Cuba and to, and to do things like what you outlined with the, the Cuban Committee in Solidarity to also uh, impl- uh, implement measures, the other measures of subversion the, uh, against Cuba, which is the National Endowment for Democracy, you know, co-opting Cuban citizens on the ground uh, to pose as human rights activists and "Quote unquote independent media." And this is U.S. top dollars that go to these things. I mean, they create these uh, these things that are meant to uh, propagandize people, give false impressions of what uh, what's happening inside of Cuba. All of this is money that could be used for something else. Money and resources and creativity that could be used for something else. You know, you said that the United States called Cuba and offered advice, and what their advice was: "Hey, y'all might want to think about putting out that fire." <laughs> That was the advice that they gave him. You know, following along the same line of thought that, that you've that you've just articulated, it's amazing to me how many more people in the United States don't understand the power of persuasion that could come from the United States being perceived as a country that does good mm-hmm. as opposed to being perceived as a country that wreaks havoc. What do I mean by that? Well, the the CSC, the Cuba Solidarity Committee, calls on the authorities to stop criminalizing the efforts made by the brigade, which is only involved in humanitarian aid campaigns and exchanges with the Cuban people. So if the United States were seen as a country that, for example, provided vaccine vials 
in the midst of COVID-19 to Cuba instead of getting in the way of not allowing those vials to be sold to Cuba so that they would have been able to give uh, shots to to, to Cuban children. If the United States were seen as helping Haitians in the midst of the hurricane and in the midst of the earthquake— instead of stealing the billions of dollars of aid that was directed. If, if, if the world saw the United States in that light, the United States would be much more effective in, quote unquote, spreading democracy. So if that was his actual real objective, but we know that that's the cloak under which the thievery of resources uh, is covered. Mm-hmm. And and on the other side of that is what we keep calling U.S.'s uh, race to the bottom is crisis of legitimacy, because, you know, while it does try to promote and, and feign as if it's representing some sort of human rights mission or some sort of standing up for the for the independence, like, like say, Ukraine or, or whatever, then people see through that. They, they know that it's not a lie because they see all these other examples like the ones you mentioned with Haiti and everything else that they that they know that this is just a ruse, a ruse. And so, you know, that, but, you know, and but on the other side of that, and I think we have to remember this is important for the people to remember what sort of actions we must take, what sort of uh organized formations that we ha- and, and uh, activities and projects that we have to be engaged in for the U.S government and the ruling class to do anything else that other than it's doing means that they cease to exist as we know them. And so they can't really be uh, oppressors or imperialists or, you know, bourgeoisie if in fact they're doing things for the masses, you know, more for the cooperating in the world and doing things for the masses of the people and helping formerly colonized people, then they cease to be what they are. And so they really can't, and and everything that they believe is predicated on sustaining uh, American exceptionalism, on sustaining the preeminence of white power and supremacy in Europe, the pan-European uh, uh, ethos in the world. And so for them, it's threatening for these other uh, aspects to emerge in the world. They see it all as a threat to their very existence. It doesn't have to be. I mean, no one's talking about killing anybody, you know, just because you represent that, but we are talking about defending ourselves and we're talking about creating another, we're talking about saving the world because it's the pan-European capitalist patriarchal project led by the U.S. that is the existential threat of the world, particularly when we start adding things that have to do with climate change in there. And it, it, it appears to me there's a certain level of desperation now because there it's obvious that um, the global South, particularly South America, Latin America, is completely going in another direction. They've had enough of neoliberalism. We've uh, got about a minute and a half. Your thoughts? In Latin America and the same with Africa, actually. The only thing that this, the Africa now has to engage in a class talk, but it too, you see as leaders seeing that you know, the United States and the West is not really uh, offering anything that's that's uh, congru- that's co- commensurate or or required for their real development. And so you see, you know, and so they, and then their de- desperation in that when it comes to Africa, I agree with you about Latin America, and it's more of a decidedly left tide when it comes to Africa. Now they have to resort to claiming what China is doing is are are uh, what you call predatory loans and things like that. And it's just that this is what they've been doing. This is what their legacy is of colonialism. It's the projection 
of empire mm -hmm. uh, because China is not creating predatory loans. China is lending money at lower rates than the IMF and the World Bank. China is canceling debt. Canceling it, debt. Cancel Now, if that's predatory, I need someone to help to define predatory because when you're canceling, you know, please, please, somebody come and cancel my mortgage I, I, I was gonna say, and allow me to keep my house. I was going to say, I hope my mortgage uh, <laughs> uh, company becomes predatory. Exactly. Please <laughs> hook a brother up. Anyway, <laughs> Netfa Freeman, as always, sir, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis. We look forward to having you back. Thank you. Thanks so much. Folks, you've been listening to The Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. Thank you for allowing our voices into your space. On behalf of myself and my co-host, Garland Nixon, we hope you were informed and enlightened, and we look forward to talking with you all right here tomorrow on Radio Sputnik. Be safe. Peace and blessings. We're out. 